Hi, everybody. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can always find out more about what we do on officehours.global. Our first hour is a general discussion of production and IT-related topics where we answer audience-submitted questions. Our second hour, typically a deeper dive into a topic. And today, Wednesday, is... Yeah, kind of nominally audio day, although in the first hour, you can ask whatever questions you want. Uh, today, we do have a special guest for our second hour. Paul Selker is the president of Spark Street Digital, an audio integrator that does work in multiple states. And he'll discuss how he positions AV and webcasting services in the market, uh, the types of events he does and the services they offer. And our own Marty Adius and our guest will be hanging out in after hours starting at 11 a.m. Pacific today. So if you want direct advice, that's the place to go after the show. Should be an interesting session second hour. Mitch, it's time for our first hour questions. What have we got today? Thank you, Bill. And uh, John Preto's in first from Las Vegas and here on our panel. Over the past 30 years, video has increased from 480i to 8K, HDR, and high frame rate. What improvements has audio made in the past 30 years, and what have you done for me lately? (laughs) And John, you asked the question, so let's start with you, and you can tell us anything more about the question that you like. Why hasn't Mickey or Dave Rad figured out how to do a Dante into my frontal cortex so I can hear zero hertz up to 100 kilohertz so I can listen to whales talk in, in Hawaii and listen to coyotes sing at 70 kilohertz. In no particular order, let's see if Jesse Kester knows anything about whale sound. Jesse? Well, you couldn't have asked this question in a better year. It's the 30th anniversary of Jurassic Park being released. And that was the first film to use Dolby Digital Audio, where they played the audio back from a compact disc instead of the optical track on the film. Nice. Uh, Mitch, your thoughts? My vote is on bit depth. I think the fact that we're now up to 32 bits uh, for our uh, sound devices uh, and things like that gives us a lot of flexibility in post because with bit bit depth comes uh, dynamic range. And it's nice to be able to record something and not have to worry about uh, crushing the meters. Jeffrey Powers. Two words for you, John. Uh, spatial audio. That is going. That's the. That's where people are going with uh, with audio. Uh, you have FLAC and wave sound, which is pretty much uncompressed audio. Which I don't know if you can do any better than that. But then you put it in spatial audio. All of a sudden, you can put frequencies all over your head. So I suppose that would be the uh, that would be the big answer is spatial. Courtney, well, spatial audio has been around for hundred years but uh with with uh holographic recording remember those with you know binaural recording where you put a a uh, microphones in a dummy head i think most of the advancements have been in digital signal processing you're not going to get much better in signal quality than what we have available today as far as sample rate because you've already the existing sample rates exceed the the uh, um, capability of the human hearing so uh yeah you're not going to be able to hear DC or, uh, you know, microwaves. But uh, I think uh, noise cancellation is, has had the most advancement in the last few years using AI to remove unwanted noise from wanted noise and the ability to filter out uh, specific things even though they overlap uh, frequencies that you want to keep. So I think that's where most of the advancements have happened. Andy, you work in the audio fields every day. What say you? Uh, I would say uh, 20 years ago when the line race came into uh, uh, being there, and they have stuck with us ever since, which is great. Um, they have their applications. They're not the fix-all, but uh, they have stuck around. And you know, every pretty much every concert you go to in a large venue, you're going to see one. 
Um, that along with uh, digital controlled consoles, I'm talking about only the live space here, uh, with high sample rates and bit rates have done wonders for our industry too. You mentioned line arrays, and I think those are the speakers that have, you see them in concerts, and it's like a, uh, a string of speakers, the bottom of which is usually curved back. Is there some specific acoustics, the reason that they, they set them up like that? Yes, they give you enormous amounts of vertical control over your coverage area. Um, and newer systems in the last, I don't know, like 10 years, something like that, give you some horizontal control. And that, that gives you just amazing fidelity to uh, specific parts of your audience area. And that's probably an advanced workshop that we'll get to later <laughs> uh, down the road. But yeah, that's the long and the short of it. Yeah, it's interesting because I went from concerts where there were big stacks right in front of the stage on the apron to seeing nothing but line arrays flown over large concert areas, particularly indoor concerts. I think less, uh, I've seen them less, but there may be out outdoors. It's just been interesting to me. All right, well, we'll talk more about this kind of stuff and questions to come. Let's move on to our next question this morning. Next one coming in from Scott Mueller in Germantown, New York. Thinking of getting a Synology or other server for data retention, are there any that also have a cloud backup for off-site storage? BlackBlaze only works with local drives, not network attack storage. Maybe a second hour on data asset management. Could be interesting. You can put it into the Discord. Jeffrey Powers in between. Jeffrey? So, so Synology does have a C2 cloud that you can uh, you can set up and back up. But I would, if if it comes to uh, going for one to the other, I would I would buy hardware and then uh, and then just look for the best price and the best security. Uh, you can go to Amazon, you can go to Synology, you can go to Carbonite, you can go to there's there's a just a ton of them right there. I just set up myself. A true NAS box, so I built a computer and, and put true NAS, which is absolutely free, uh, on it, onto it. And then I'm thinking of my cloud backups. Probably going to be Amazon uh, for for that because I think it's the most secure and the best price. Courtney, and if you're thinking of uh, backing up uh, files like your Office files, Microsoft 365 incorporates Microsoft's cloud and it stores most of its files in the cloud and locally but mainly in the cloud. So you've always got your uh, files accessible in the cloud and backed up. Uh, so they're moving toward that as, as well. And they give you free cloud storage, or at least a certain amount of free cloud storage. Okay, Scott, hopefully that took care of things for you. Let's move on to the next question. In with another question is Bobby Rafferty in Central Florida. Has anyone heard that Adobe Substance 3D Stager 4 has 3D capture photogrammetry included? Here's one of the many tutorial videos, and there's a link for it. Jeffrey, did you watch the video? Did you have time? Uh, yeah, I watched the video. I, I've I've been working with Adobe for a few years now, and uh, they they basically in the last year they basically ripped out all their 3D features out of Photoshop and and programs like that uh, to create this whole substance area. Which is, if you've got Adobe Cloud, you don't get the substance 3D stuff. You have to pay extra for that. But it, they've got a great suite of tools that allow you to create the 3D, take pictures, put them into uh, of objects, put them into whatever environment you need to, if you want to dress them up, make them look older, make them new look newer, uh, things like that, that uh, just uh, amazing stuff. And it's just in their first year, I believe, year or two of, uh, of this software. So it's going to get a lot better. And, and I'm expecting by NAB, we're going to see some really great uh, great uh, examples coming out. Nice. Next question. 
From John Foltz in Sealings Grove, Pennsylvania, EarthCam has a mast mount weatherized camera powered by a solar panel and a marine battery. Files are sent by cellular to the cloud. A portal shows your files and videos and downloads content. Works great, and there's a link to it. I haven't seen that particular unit. I did work, you know, when I was doing stuff with ENG crews, um, most of those trucks had mast cams or mast microwave uh camera combos that would go up high. You've probably seen those news vans in the old days running around. I do wonder what's going to happen with that kind of stuff. Uh, I, I'm always concerned, you know, if it's solar and it can be put out someplace, what are the uh, the setup requirements in terms of guy wires and things like that? I used to have a really tall stand that I kept around that went up to about 30 feet. And um, I only had to use it a couple of times, usually in indoor halls where I had no backup from the sound from the board. So I would fly a little EV635 mic way up high. But I also put cameras on that. And boy, it was always a real challenge getting that mass supported. So I got anything close to a decent uh, picture out of it. Um be interested in how these new mast mount weatherized cameras do over that. If you're taking stills, not a big deal. But if you're trying to do video on something like this, whether the environmental conditions around you makes it a good or bad thing. Interesting to look into. I don't know about this one, but hopefully it's an, a good tool and uh, gets you the results that you're looking for. Let's go to the next question. Andy Kokendorfer from Vieira, Florida, asking, which software do you recommend to quickly mock up set designs for clients in 3D? Thanks. Courtney Gooden's going to help us. I haven't done it recently, but I used to use Google SketchUp, and it may be they, sold, they spun it off to Trimble Labs. I'm looking for it. But uh, that's a good easy uh, web-based uh, 3D uh, generation device that you can generate sets and walls and, and architectural uh, items fairly quickly. It's not specific. Boy, that's hard to say this morning. Uh, but I've used uh, Omnigraphle, which I know Alex talks about a good little bit as well. It's a program that does geometric things pretty quickly. It is not fully featured. And in, I think it started its life as a corporate org chart tool where you could put all sorts of things in a single plane. But because it's so good with primitives like... Uh, rectangles and things like that. I've been able to build set plots with it, uh, bring in elements um, like cameras and lights and and do pretty decent uh, setup plans through it very quickly. But uh, it's not specifically for that. So uh, just another thought here. Hopefully one of those helps you. Next question. Paul Valhus in, I said Valhus, Valhus in Austin, Texas. Uh, he says, uh, TechCrunch says OpenAI uh, releases a tool to detect AI-generated text, including those from ChatGPT. Do you need this tool, or can you just tell when you read an AI text that isn't identified as such? John Preto's going to start us off. So in, in the fine print here, they don't tell you that it's got 26% accuracy on this method. Uh, Stanford released a paper this week that is claiming 95% accuracy on another method, but this is an arms race. And so it's going to be, you know, cat and mouse over the next decade. Jeffrey Powers next. Yeah, I, I've seen, uh, I've seen the growth from, uh, uh article writing, uh, AI. And I, I tried one like a year ago and I remember it was, it was just a lot of repetitiveness. So it'd be, uh, the ball is red. That's the red ball. Uh, type things. A uh, lot of passive voices been happening 
in writing any type of articles. I've been writing articles and I've had to get, and, and I, pr I actually choose to kind of use it as a wireframe. So I don't use everything that uh, ChatGPT sends to me. Uh, I'll, I'll cultivate it just to my voice, but uh, different keywords and different uh, phrasings uh, can also be tracked. It's used technically using AI to find AI, which is pretty inceptive, right? <laughs> That's right. It's the snake eating its own tail. Courtney. And if you're using ChatGPT to emulate the style of a specific writer, telling the difference between the real writer, famous writer, and the ChatGPT is going to be much lower success rate in identifying that because it's writing with a specific style. And like uh, Preto said, 29% is not a good success rate, and it has false positives and false negatives. So uh, it's still kind of a toss-up. Using that tool to... Uh, you know, give a uh, student an F on their paper because it, the, this software thinks that they cribbed it from a chat GPT would not be, would not go down very well with a 29% success rate. Mitchell. Nobody likes a rat. <laughs> okay. With that pithy comment, next question. Andy Kokendorfer from Vieira, Florida, asking, thoughts on the new Rode NTH100M headset mic combo for Zoom? And there's Courtney. a link to it. I haven't heard it yet. It looks interesting. It's pretty. Look, there's a picture of it. Um, uh, it's got some nice uh, earpads, and, and it supposedly, uh, you know, sports distortion-free, highly detailed sound. But you know, whether or not that lives up to it, the hype, we don't know. It says broadcast quality microphone, although it's a very small diaphragm condenser, and I'm not sure what noise canceling or what frequency response it is, but it's uh, the boom there, as you can see, is uh, pretty small and off to the side and doesn't look like it's uh, covered with any type of pop filter, so that might be an issue as well. So remains to be seen. We'll have to see if somebody uh, shells out the big bucks for it. Marty, what say you? Well, it looks like they're certainly going after a, a wannabe pro marketplace. Um, and as I looked at the specs, it looks like actually a, a dynamic omnidirectional microphone with uh, three and a half millimeter TRRS connectors on the end of the wire. Now that that wire is interchangeable uh, or exchangeable or replaceable rather, because it it um, unplugs from the actual headset. So. Maybe somebody could create another wire with different connectors that are, you know, will interface to pro equipment, but um, but that's not how they're selling it. And by the way, uh, I wanted just wanted to mention, Bill, you you talked you asked about line array speakers, yeah, a little earlier, and it, that's something that we're going to uh, going to look at at the workshop at two o'clock. How line arrays work differently from other uh, loudspeakers, and you know when they are appropriate to use. Darn you, I had stuff planned, but I may have to dump it and come to the seminar because I want to learn some of that stuff. Uh, Andrew Livnick. Yeah, so uh, as an alternative to that uh, Rode mic, I have and have used this product from Audio-Technica, which attaches to any headphones. So my headphones of choice are these Bayer um, DT770s just because they sound really natural. They're good. I can kind of get away with using them for live settings, uh, even though they don't seal as well as some of the uh, other models. But here, let me show you what I use here. 
So this is a, an Audio-Technica product, the, what is it called? It's called the ATG-M2. It's about $79. It mounts, here, let me stop my share here. It mounts to a little doohickey you put on the uh, cup here, so you can take it on and off. It terminates in a, a 3.5 millimeter connector. And um, the nice thing about that thing is you can use your headphones of choice and still have a decent sounding microphone. That microphone sounds to my ears better than a lot of the USB headset microphones that kind of sound thin. And this one sounds a little closer to what we would consider a broadcast, a broadcaster's headset, you know, like what a, a commentator would use during a game, you know, uh, you know, that you're used to hearing very close, present sounding quality to it. And if you're learning the language, folks, a doohickey is a slightly smaller version of a thingamajig, just to keep that out there. Next question. From Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas, asking, My gunner glasses are 2.5, and I want to be able to see my screens better. I can see them real well when I get close, but I want to see them from further away. Should I go to 2.5, 3.0, or 3.5? Or should I go to 2.5, to 2.0, or 1.5? Guy uses these. Courtney couldn't. Do you want to do something on uh, readers? Maybe he's talking about uh, gunner glasses. Maybe he's talking about cheaters, you know, or, which we called, uh, you know, drugstore magnifying glasses. Uh, and as we get older, <clears throat> Paul, and I certainly know you and I are in that uh, bucket of people, uh, presbyopia creeps in, which means your eyes are not as, the lenses in your eyes are not as flexible, so you can't focus closely anymore. Uh, they tend to focus at the distance that they uh, normally rest at. So if you can see things pretty well without glasses far away, I would go with a smaller magnification because uh, a larger magnification means you're going to have to be a lot closer to the screen to get it in focus. So if you want to lean back and still have your screen in focus, go with the 1.5 or less uh, or nothing if, it, if it's in focus when you're leaning back. Andrew. Paul, I know you, and we are of that age where we should up our, the quality of our glasses. So I don't know how long I've had progressives, but progressives are the answer because uh, they're, they're kind of a souped-up uh, bifocal, if you will. So they gradually uh, focus your eye towards what you need to look at. For example, I'm looking at my screen. It's in focus. If I have to look at something... 20 feet away or 100 feet away, I look at the top of the frame and I can see that in focus. And progressives are the only type of glasses I know of that'll, that'll do that for you. Jeffrey Powers. Yeah, Gunner, I have actually have a pair of Gunner glasses back there, non-prescription. So I'm assuming you've got prescription Gunners. And if that's the case, the only optometrist is going to be able to tell you what's the best uh, going for that. But, you know, if he was your mother, it'd say, don't get too close to that screen because, you know, you could lose your eyesight. Courtney. One other thing I forgot to mention is, is I had my, when I had my interocular lenses replaced, um, I had them done uh, with monovision in mind, which one eye focuses a little bit closer than the other eye. And so when I get equally magnified magnifiers, I have a range of depth. With magnifying, if your vision is corrected to uh, 20-20, let's say, or 30-30, yeah, um, 20-20, it means that both eyes are set uh, in focus at the same distance. If you have them separated, your brain can switch between the left eye and the right eye so that 
when you put on regular magnifiers or if you have your glasses, if your optometrist will change your prescription to have one eye focus a little closer than the other eye, uh, then you can focus close and you can back up and focus further away and your brain will switch between the left eye and the right eye. That's helped me uh, quite a bit by having that split focus. That way, uh, just a, a, a regular pair of magnifiers, I can see close and I can see further far away as my brain switches between the two eyes. Mitchell. Yeah, I encourage uh, Paul to uh, see a professional to get your eyes checked. I had this done last year, and uh, he determined that the cataracts that most people get, especially those of us that have been uh, exposed to uh, high ultraviolet, like an HMI light, uh, get the cataract surgery. And I'm telling you, it changed dramatically uh, everything that I see from, from color temperature to my ability to focus. So if you're anywhere as close to needing something like that, have that surgery done first, then go shopping for the proper glasses with a professional. Yep, I did monovision as well. Been a great boon. I would, I'm so glad I did it. Next question. From Douglas Carmichael, has anyone on the panel worked with an NAS network attached storage unit that has native Thunderbolt support? What models would they recommend? Jeffrey. So as I, did, I said earlier, I uh, just built myself a computer that's uh, and running TrueNAS for my uh, my NAS, and it does have Thunderbolt support on it. I don't. Uh, I wouldn't use. I, basically, I'd use it for transferring directly in, and if I needed to, uh, if I had like a separate RAID, like a I don't know a, a Drobo or something like that, that I would connect up every now and then to use. But I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't have that constant connection to it, and uh, it. Depending on uh, if TrueNAS actually supports Thunderbolt or USB-C, you might not get be getting the speeds that you think that you get off of a Thunderbolt. Well done. Next question. Paul Wallace is back from Austin, Texas, asking, the Baofeng may be the most useful transceiver of all time and the most controversial. It's UHF and VHF and easily programmed for all frequencies. Would you use it for comms in a live setting? Courtney Gooden? I've tried this in the past with uh, these are uh, Baofeng makes this little handheld radio that you can get for about 65 bucks. It's a, certainly a lot cheaper than you will get for the Motorola uh, transceivers uh, that you see in comms and on sets. And you can program for the frequencies that are used commonly in VHF for uh, communications uh, in production. Uh, however, I found the the ability to they weren't as fast on the transmit and receive. It would take a while to break the squelch, and uh, it, it was difficult for me to use for communications. Of course, I was using a, a different brand than uh, the Baofeng, however you pronounce it. Uh, so it looks interesting. The fact that you can probably program it uh, over a serial port. Uh, is great because once you choose and set your selection of frequencies, that's the most difficult thing with these uh, very versatile handheld transceivers. They're fairly difficult to program the first time, but once you get all the frequencies stored in memory there, you can trans transport them between uh, units very easily. So as long as you keep a copy of them, or sometimes you can hook them up to a computer and save them out. Uh, so that makes it a lot easier to program them. But uh, yeah, it looks like a pretty good unit, handheld, tiny, and rechargeable. Are those the one that Alex keeps talking about that are like stupid, crazy, powerful, and he's worried about whether or not he's going to get in trouble with the, I, I don't know if they're the yeah, same. They're ham, ham radio, yeah, they're uh, ham radio license may be required. Ah, okay. Mitchell? Yeah, that was, that was, was what I was going to ask because I know Paul's a ham radio operator, and is this a ham product? 
because you need to be licensed above a certain power. Well, that would be frequencies, though, right? This it seemed power to me and that frequencies. this was, yeah, yeah, it depends oh. on the frequency. But a lot of times, excuse me for butting in. No, 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 go ahead. It's a conversation. Um, the um, uh, a lot of times these will are lock out everything but the ham frequencies. You know, so they lock out commercial frequencies and the stuff business band frequencies. But these apparently are unlocked. That's where the controversy comes from, and they can tune a wide variety of VHF and UHF frequencies. And since they can transmit, uh, it does require a license in many of those frequencies to transmit. So make sure Sweet. you're licensed for the frequencies you're transmitting in. Courtney, does you it, don't uh, really, oh, go ahead. Does it preclude um, uh, aircraft communications, things like that? Eh, probably. I don't know. Uh, I haven't tried this one, so I, I can't tell you. And sometimes, you know, a lot of times these will have a jumper inside that you just go in and cut that little microscopic jumper or move one of those microscopic resistors off the surface mount board, and then you can get them to unlock all the frequencies, but it's fairly dangerous. Not that we're recommending that here on office hours. And if the FCC comes calling and has a white van pull up outside with a rotating antenna on it and gives you a summons to court. We didn't tell you to do this, so who knows? Uh, hopefully that helped you, Paul. It's an interesting question. Let's move on to the next one. Douglas Carmichael here asking, uh, will any continuity features work on a 2017 MacBook Pro with Ventura? Jeffrey Powers. Yeah, I have a 2017 sitting right here. It's uh, So there's many different features. Uh, the only feature that does not work is the AirPlay to Mac. You need a 2018 or better. Other than that, you can do auto unlock. You can do the camera. You can do the sketch and markup. You can do handoff, which uh, go from machine to machine. Instant hotspot, iPhone cellular, uh, sidecar, SMS, universal clipboard, and universal control. Wow. Have you tested it with continuity camera, which still fascinates me, that idea that you could have a camera literally yeah. central on your screen and it would take a picture of both you and your keyboard at the same time. That seems like black magic to me. Yeah, but it's also it's also dependent on the camera. So you're, you're not going to get the best quality like you would uh, camera from uh, from 2023. But, uh, yeah, it, it, I haven't I, I'm going to have to double check on that one. But yeah. I know that, that you can do it. Sometimes features on Macs require a certain processor, as Jeffrey just noted, that, you know, up to this point, it'll do that. The next processors were fast enough or had the stronger GPU and they will allow extra features. So you always have to watch out. That's one of the things that keeps pushing us to uh, upgrade. And I have to say that I'm, I'm due and I'm starting to see things that I'm trying to load that just don't load comfortably on a machine that's three years old. I try to get three years out of my laptops whenever I can because I think that's pretty efficient. I don't want to just keep turning them over. Particularly um, when I've been reading a good little bit that the recyclers are having tremendous problems with uh, the Macs that have from the last couple of years because people are turning them in, trading them in, whatever. But because of the security features built in, they can't even strip away the current software and reload it with anything else. Um, if the person trading in the computer doesn't it disable all the security features before they send it in, a lot of those are having to go directly to recycling and they can't flip them over to people who would otherwise want these relatively recent computers. So I think it's a public service thing. I, I'm paying more, I'm being more mindful when I turn in computers now to make sure that I strip them down to nothing so that everything that's linked into it 
uh, that is keyed to my thumbprint or keyed to anything else uh, is gone so they can reuse them and not get them into the e-waste system quite so quickly. Just a thought. Next question. From Jesse Kester in Glendale, congratulations. Everyone has been promoted to judge status in a perpetual Turing test. What are you doing to prepare? Uh, Mitchell, what are you doing to prepare? <laughs> I'd love to hear what uh, Jesse has to say. I'm sorry, Bill. Uh, just so we understand the question just a little bit better. Fair enough. Jesse, dive in. You're our guide here. So just a little bit of context about what the Turing test is. Um, Alan Turing was a, a code cracker engineer and thought leader around World War II. And in 1950, he uh, proposed a test. It was a blind test between uh, three three party members. So there's a wall and a judge sits on one side of the wall and a computer sits on the other side and a human sits on the other side. And the judge asks questions and then he's fed answers either from the human or the computer. And the judge has to be able to tell uh, which is the artificial intelligence and which is the human answering the question. Uh, the recent shorthand for passing this test is that the AI has gotten so good that uh, the judge can't tell the difference between the two parties behind the wall. Um, before we answer this, I'd like to offer a couple of other uh, so-called win states for the AI. Um, there, there are other ways that this test can be passed. Uh, the first is that uh, the human being on the other side is so good at impersonating an artificial intelligence that the judge can't tell the difference between the two. A third possible win state would be that the judge is uniquely um, insensitive to the idiosyncrasies of human nature and simply is unqualified to tell the difference between a computer and a human being. And I'd like to propose a fourth win state, which is, I believe, the most ominous win state. And that is one in which the entire society has become so homogenized that the difference between AI and human beings is becomes impossible to measure. So as, as ChatGPT and MidJourney reach these, these levels of mass adoption, I want to know what other member, members of the panel are doing to ensure that they are qualified judges for this test that is happening pretty much all day, every day at this point. Uh, fun answer, John Preto. Um, I don't know about judging. In, in uh, January of 2000, Raymond Kurzweil predicted that the Turing test would be, would be realized in 2029, this decade. Interesting. Courtney Gooden. Yeah, I think um, there's been a movement in the other direction. The... Um, uh, Google had something called a project called Duplex, which they put uh, up for a brief period of time, which would be which was a AI powered personal assistant that could uh, synthesize human voice fairly accurately and could make appointments for you, could call real human beings and carry on a conversation with them and take notes and set appointments in your calendar and everything. And they've deprecated that as of December of 2022 last year. So uh, they were taking down all the web support for that because I think they got a little too much pushback on that. And so what I've done is uh, my fear is that all these AI bots are now going to be pressed into service and making all those solicitation calls that I get 20 or 30 of a day. And uh, if they ever take out the little feature that you, where you hear it uh, switch over from the auto dialer to the voice synthesizer or the live person in another country who's trying to sell you whatever – uh, 
if I ever get rid of that little, if they ever get rid of that little click or beep, where it, which is my cue to hang up, uh, then I'll be in trouble because then I'll be having to play judge as to is this a real person? Is this do I want to be rude and hang up on them or tell that guy who tells me he's with the sheriff's department and uh, you know he looks forward to having my contribution this year? If I can just hang up on him, you know, I'll feel a little less guilty. Jeffrey Powers. There's two parts to this. The first part is uh, the first part is keywords because it's all about the keywords that you input into any AI to get results back. So if you bring in the right, right keywords, then you can find out if something is computer uh, driven or not. The second part is the uh, the ability to that there is an actual human behind the robot behind the judge. So that, like for instance in Courtney's situation. If you had a, if you had somebody in a different country that was speaking a different language and uh, on the phone with you, and then they had an AI interpreter that was actually interpreting to your language, then is that computer? Is that Schrodinger's cat? Is that what is that from in that in that level? And can you judge from there that that's robot or human? Interesting, Mitchell. I think a great uh, time today would be to go to the 1964 ep episode of The Twilight Zone and the episode called The Obsolete Man. It's very interesting to see how they were dealing with these kinds of issues way back then before everybody had a computer. But uh, Rod Serling was a genius. Jesse has more thoughts here. Jesse? Uh, Jeffrey, yes, I, I always try to keep in mind that there is always a, there's a human behind every AI. There's the engineers and the the generators of the data that has been scraped by the AI. So thank you for the reminder on that, uh, John Pareto. I I, I got to disagree with you. We don't have to wait till 2029. I firmly believe that uh, we as a society have been failing as judges for about 10 years now. Interesting. I have to say, I have a little tiny micro Turing test for phone solicitors, Courtney, and I just always answer my phone. Hi, this is Bill Davis. And if the first thing I hear is, is Bill Davis, then I immediately hang up. I don't even get past that beginning because no, everybody's expecting you to go hi. And I figure if I announce myself and they can't handle that, I don't want to talk to them. Um, the other thing is that if you're interested in Alan Turing, who was a fascinating character in history, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch starred in the biopic about his life called The Imitation Game a few years ago. It's a worthy movie. It's just fun to watch. And you get in the middle of World War II and how they're trying to crack the German codes. And it was Turing's genius, largely responsible with a whole group of people behind him. And that's the fun of the story uh, that managed to do that. And most people think shortened World War II by a significant amount. Jeffrey Powers, you had a last thought? Yeah, um, it, talking about your answering the phone, it's very important that you don't answer your phone with a positive. Don't answer it with a high. Don't answer it with a yes. Don't answer it with anything like that because not only could it be an AI bot on the other end, it could be recording your voice and turning that into its own AI bot it's on its own. What I like to do, and especially when it comes to anything that's spam risk, is I answer the phone and then I just hit mute and I wait for them to say hello. And then I'll, then I'll say, who is this in a downward motion? If I don't hear anything within seven seconds, they'll usually hang up. Now, some of these have these older systems to them. And the older systems had this special feature that basically said, answered not, uh, answer no, no, uh, no response, which basically 
took the uh, took the phone number and then placed it into a different queue because it thought it was a fax machine or a non-responsive number. And so if you get a call a number that's like that, if you do that, you find you get a lot less calls because they're using the antiquated uh, equipment. It's easier than teaching yourself to whistle, whistle the cue tone. <laughs> Mitchell, you had another thought. Yeah, the, uh, uh, the telemarketer uh, answering to that issue, um, a lot of those telemarketing systems, the way they work is they simultaneously dial like multiple phone numbers, and the one that answers first is the one that they answer. So if you pause, like Jeffrey suggested, uh, you can uh, probably not get uh, on the list there. Um, but on the other hand, if you make if you can make that sound that Courtney was describing, it's sort of like, sort of like that. It sounds like a water drop. Um, they get very confused. There you go. Well, there's some techniques. Jesse, it was a good question. It was worthy of discussing, so thank you for putting it in. Let's move to the next question. From Andy Kokendorfer from Vieira, Florida, I can't seem to stream directly from Zoom to a secure SSO or LDAP webcast URL. That's a lightweight directory access protocol or a single sign-on. Most webcasts, you, webcast URLs be pub, can, are public to be used with Zoom live streaming. You know, this is the beginning of this whole series of protocols that everybody's trying to figure out how to, you know, both secure uh, your communication with these computers and these systems and also make it not terribly complicated. It, it seems to me that it is still public. One of the things I love about office hours is I sit here day after day just uh, quietly when I'm just watching the show from in the panel. And I learned so much that I didn't know was even possible before in terms of the back-end systems and how they function. It has not made me in any way, shape, or form an expert, or even partially competent in many fields. But at least I understand a little more about the issues of the day. And I don't think this is going to get any easier. Um, streaming directly from Zoom to some sort of secure webcast URL is going to put you through a bunch of computers with a bunch of different requirements and protocols and access and VPNs possibly. And I, I think it's beyond the answer of one thing. It, it may be a really good second hour to talk about security of live video distribution through the web. So somebody may want to put that in the back end. Uh, sorry, I can't go any farther than that. So let's click into the next question. Next one in from Josh Kaufman, Pittsburgh, PA, asking, a friend reported a problem with his Rode NT1A mic intermittently. The interface, a Scarlett Solo, will drop any signal coming to it. Visual inspection shows not loose cables inside the mic. Temp and humidity seem to be factors. Cable was replaced. What are your thoughts? Uh, let's start with Marty Adius. Marty. All right. Well, um, if the Scarlett drops audio from any other device that's coming into it other than the road, um, then that would indicate a problem with the interface. But if it's all, if you, if the issue is only with the road connected to the Scarlet, then this type of behavior where temperature humidity is a factor could very well be the microphone. And so uh, just common troubleshooting procedure would be to find another device to plug the microphone into, find a mixer, a camera with an XLR that supplies phantom power, test it with another device. Um, that kind of issue with these large diaphragm microphones could be um, a solder joint that's within the microphone connected to the capsule itself. If it 
seems like it initially works and then audio goes away. Yep, that could be something like that. Um, so do your standard troubleshooting, work from the back end, replace and substitute, and then work towards the microphone and see where the problem, you can find out where the problem is. Andy Lipting. Uh, what Marty said, and I just add one thing, because I actually helped someone troubleshoot something similar to this, and we found the problem was actually in the USB cable between their interface and their computer. And um, it was just intermittent enough to appear to maintain a, uh, an electrical connection, but something was going on there. We replaced the cable and the problem went away uh, after doing some other troubleshooting. So um, I think... Every once in a while, like a cheap USB cable that wears out over time, that might, I think that was the issue in that case, could be here too. I'm going to interject this just because I think it might be relevant. I was shocked when I saw, come by my feed online, uh, a picture of a USB cable. I think it was one of Apple's. And in the connector, there was a substantial little tiny circuit board with a variety of little things on there. I always thought cable was just a piece of copper wire connected uh, or soldered onto the ends. But some of these new cables, particularly the digital ones that carry things like USB and uh, Thunderbolt and all those things, they're actually active processing in the connectors themselves. And it wouldn't surprise me if something, uh, some little semiconductor down in there or chip or whatever, uh, started having intermittent problems. But Courtney, you had some thoughts. Courtney? Uh, well, everything that's been presented so far could be a source. The USB cable, of course, would be between the Scarlet and the computer, because I think the NT1A is a uh, XLR microphone. Uh, so a couple of things to check. Check to make sure you're getting 48 volts phantom out of that uh, Scarlet, because if it's set for 12 volts, it might be underpowering the microphone, because there are two different flavors of phantom power, 12 and 48 usually. Uh, the other thing is some, some microphones are notoriously bad in humid environments. The Shep's microphones are notorious for going bad if you're in a, you know, if you have them in the sauna or if you have a, even if you have a, uh, a shower bathroom nearby where your where your microphone is stored, humidity builds up and it shorts out between the capsule and the backplane. Uh, the other the other possibility is if the the way that backplane is assembled, it's got these little screws around uh, that hold that uh, diaphragm, the sputtered uh, plastic diaphragm taunt. And if those screws get loose, uh, your diaphragm can uh, short out if it receives a little gust of wind or a little bit of. Uh, moisture in there. So uh, the the distance is critical between that and the back plane, and it's adjusted through. Note to self, Bill, never do a show called Sauna Talk. Next yeah, it question. May, it may need service. Yeah. <laughs> Next question. From Chris Widener in Lafayette, Indiana. Chris asks, I now have access to both the Pro Starlink dishes and will be doing testing once one more part for the flat panel comes in. What would be interesting things to try? Starlink. Well, I, Alex has talked a lot about his Starlink rig. And, uh, you know, if you've got a clear sky thing, um, that's what I've been hearing recently is that if you have a good uh, chunk of the horizon that you're able to get it uh, pointed in the right direction at the right time, they can work well. Um, but one more part of the flat panel comes in. I, oh, that's just you're getting ready and you're going to do interesting things to try. I would go looking for for where your best connections are. I mean, I, the Starlinks are moving overhead, right? They're orbiting and it's low Earth orbit. 
So I'm all, I would be fascinated to just try and say, when you started off in one particular position, um, I don't know how they guide you to what azimuth and what, what direction to point it, but I would be thinking about those kind of testing in the early days. Just uh, try it, point it in one direction, and then see if moving it a little bit one way or another helps or hinders, and you will eventually probably get to the point where your best signal reception uh, for your system is figured out. That's my my guess. Good luck with it. Ping us back on the show, Chris, and let us know how things work. Next question. Javier Alfaro from Mexico City, Mexico, has a question. When getting a new iPhone, is it worth the trouble of doing a clean install and manually adding apps as you need them? Since Apple makes so simple to transfer everything from your old one, I've been doing it that way for years. What are your thoughts? Start with John Prado. John? I've had every iPhone since the three. I'm on the up, the annual upgrade plan, and I get a new one every year. And uh, now I just do the cloud restore. I've never had an issue. It works great. Jeffrey Powers. So when you get the new iPhone, it's actually doing a clean install for you. It, it's all loading all the apps. It's just working off of a like an XML file. I don't know what, what file it's actually working off of, but we'll just say XML file for argument's sake. Uh, and it's just going down the list and it says, okay, we installed the phone. Let's bring your contacts back in. Let's bring in this app. Let's bring in this app. So by just erasing it and starting over and doing it manually, you're, you're just reinventing the wheel at that point. I agree with all of this, although I will say app curation has become an issue for me. I've, I've occasionally now gone into the, the fifth page or something like that. I'm going, what, what is that? Why did I download it? And what does it have any purpose in my life anymore? And I usually have to tap on it and hope that it doesn't ask me for a lot of details or something like that. But I, I want to minimize the amount of time and, and confusion I have in my life. And one of the things I will note is that I'm glad that sometimes apps that have not kept up are kind of removed for me if the app was not supported. Because in the early days, we had a lot of people who were making apps and thought they would this would be a business for them, but they've gone away since then. And so I like getting rid of those apps that no longer do anything without trying them all. Other apps uh, you get notifications are, I remember like early news service apps, uh, would have new versions. <laughs> you really have to get rid of the old ones because they don't work anymore. Uh, so it's interesting. Uh, hopefully that helps. Uh, let's move on to the next question. Next question coming in from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. It's right from the menu. What's the current drone du jour? Uh, let's start with Jesse. I am I am a big fan of uh, the DJI Mavic series drones. I feel like the three... The the Cine combo is like five thousand dollars, which seems a bit a bit high for a hobby purchase. But um, hey, here's the Mavic One. I took it out a couple of days ago. It's still kicking, still shoots beautiful video. Um, the the Mavic series is really solid, and the the software that goes along with it is also very very good. Tom Ferguson. Well, thanks for reminding me. I've got my Mavic Two Pro. And I need to get out because this is a good time here in Phoenix to uh, be out flying. There you go. Next question. Douglas Carmichael asking, I read an article in Radio World about rural farm radio broadcasters being concerned about the removal of AM radio from new vehicles. Given the dominance of streaming and mobile devices, is there still a place for AM? That's a good question. Courtney Gooden. And by the way, before we dive into this one, we are close to the top of the hour now. 
We have a little bit more time to go, and I just looked in the back page, and it looks like all of our questions are for our guests now. So we have enough room for some general ones between now and the top of the hour. If you have any thoughts about uh, audio or anything else that is more general because it's Wednesday, toss in a question, and we'll be happy to get to them before we get to the top of the hour. So anyway, that said, Courtney Gooden, what's up? Uh, yeah, I think what the problem is, I think uh, part of, I read some articles like this, uh, mainly uh, complaining about Tesla, who was considering removing uh, AM from their entertainment systems and all the new Teslas. And the problem with AM radio in these new electric vehicles is the electric vehicles travel, uh, you know, are, are propelled by high-voltage uh, AC. And that generates quite a bit of noise, all the switching systems and electronics that go to controlling the speed and, and of those electric vehicles. Generates a lot of hash in the AM band. And so trying to filter that out in an AM radio would be a lot of trouble. The problem with just saying, well, just use streaming over your cell phone. If you're in a rural location, you may not have good cell phone access. So, uh, And you don't want to be necessarily eating up your limited bandwidth uh, uh, frequent, you know, your limited bandwidth cap on your cell data if uh, if you're trying to scrape out a living as a farmer. So uh, I understand their problem, and a lot of and, and a lot of the rural broadcasts, uh, you know, the farm reports, the barrels and gilts up fifteen point two because I used to do those farm reports are on AM radio, and you won't find very many of them in the FM band. You miss the knowing the cost of pork bellies every day. Yep, there I can tell Mitchell Hill. Uh, what Courtney said, plus a few other things. Uh, the AM band um, is being assaulted with all types of uh, noise uh, uh, sources, uh, power supplies, lighting fixtures, all kinds of things. So it's harder and harder to uh, get a clean-sounding AM radio. There was a time, back when I was in radio, that AM was king, and it uh, went everywhere and could uh, reach different places because at night it would travel farther. So what started to happen is uh, as people felt that AM was less and less a uh, thing, they started uh, uh, downgrading the quality of the receivers and the necessity of the receivers for AM. So I think it, what might happen is the government might step in and say, uh, you must be put AM radios in your cars for uh, security and uh, emergency situations. The irony of all this is is that back in the day, they did that for FM because FM was not being included in radios. It was all AM radios, and uh, uh, the government had to step in and say, you must put FM receivers. The other irony of this whole discussion is that the quality of AM and FM receivers has gone downhill since they uh, used to be the thing uh, as far back as a couple of decades. So uh, the other problem is the quality is not as good as it should be. And the other thing is that AM is not as a viable business model to be involved in. So some of it has economic pressures going on, in addition to noise, in addition to the quality of the uh, receivers being made. So I think there's some life there in AM. And a lot of thoughts are being uh, spread around by the FCC or what they call uh, uh, reports uh, for consideration uh, about moving AM totally into the digital realm, which uh, the tests that have been done on it are quite good. But I don't think the average farmer is uh, going to be investing in digital AM anytime soon. Marty Adias. Yeah, digital AM. This is another excuse to sell more radios. Um, but yeah, I think uh, you just touched on a whole bunch of uh, really important and valid points. You know, uh, the business of AM radio is just not what it used to be. 
And, um, uh, you know, it's, it, I find interesting that a lot of modern cell phones today have FM receivers built into them. Uh, you need to activate it. There's, they don't come like you can't find an app that's preloaded on your phone, but, um, but the, and AM radio is very popular in rural because it's ultra local, right? Um, but I think that the value of AM radio lies in the event of natural disasters, when internet's not going to work, when Wi-Fi is not going to work, um, you know, AM radio will go farther than FM radio and uh, will, you know, could potentially be a communications method of choice uh, under extreme adverse conditions. Jesse Kester. There will be room for AM radio as long as we make room for AM radio. And I encourage anyone who hasn't gone to the AM band recently to jump over there as soon as you can. It is, it's, it's incredible what's going on over there, whether you want, um, to exercise your brain by trying to follow <laughs> insane ramblings of hosts who are forced to talk for eight hours straight without a break or listen to some sermons or some classical music. Please jump over to the AM band. It is a fantastic source of entertainment and my go-to when I'm driving. Jeffrey Powers. So this was going to be the goal of ATSC 3.0 and beyond was to bring the uh, radio stations into the digital realm through the antenna that was uh, that the primary uh, primary TV station was going to uh, hold on there. So not only could you get uh, FM and AM radio stations from this uh, from this antenna, you would also get the ability to do some limited internet shopping or internet surfing. In, in involved in that, so th that would then mean that that uh, something like a computer-based uh, device inside of equipment could help not only to for you to uh, listen to your favorite show, but also for you to uh, uh, surf on, uh, check on anything like the weather, and then of course uh, give out location. So if if you're running into problems, then people can find you. So that I don't think a AM the term AM is just going to go away, but AM radio will stay in many different forms. Uh, they'll just end up free, uh, using the frequencies for something else. I do miss from back when I was learning to drive at 16, all of us had cars and the cars had, or we used our mother's cars in some cases. We didn't, we weren't given a car at 16, but the AM radio that sat in the center of the dashboard had these great push buttons, had a very tactile feel. And I think it created a lot of the uh, commercial media that we have today, because as soon as anything other than a song you like came on, you would start hitting buttons until you found one that you liked. There was no loyalty to anything. And uh, because of that, you used to get competing stations in market. I grew up in Phoenix and we had Chris and Crux as the two big AM kids stations playing rock and roll. And I can't tell you the number of times I switched back and forth and back. Who's going to get a good song that I like first? Oh, no, I don't like that song. I'm going back to the other song. It really did. Um, condition us to wanting the music that we wanted when we wanted it. And I think it was that era 
that led to eventually things like the iTunes store and people saying, no, I don't want all the junk in between. I just want the stuff that I want. It's interesting how this whole thing developed over the course of time. Mitch, you had a thought before we move on? I don't want to wax too philosophically uh, about the history of AM, but uh, most of the stations I worked at in my 70s radio career were AM stations. And it truly was the original social media because there weren't many places where you could listen to music, new music being released, and comment about it by getting a call-in request or whatever else and have some interaction uh, with the uh, the whole uh, entertainment part of what the media was. So um, it, I'm missing it, and I can see where if you're out in a rural area and uh, you're used to getting that farm report or hearing uh, a special sermon or a broadcast at uh, WSM or one of the uh, other stations, that uh, it would be missed. And um, I think that what's going to happen, as uh, uh, Jeffrey sort of indicated, is it's going to move somewhere else, uh, maybe same place on the dial, but it's going to be compressed and used differently as a digital file. Yeah, a little bit more time. Jesse, you want to make a last comment before we move on to our last two questions? Yes, and those pleas from the host to turn down your radio when you call in, they seem to echo today on Zoom when people tell someone, do you have an open mic or you have an open speaker in your house right now? Absolutely. Let's go to the next question. And it's from Josh Kaufman, Pittsburgh, PA, asking, what are the best practices when using a limiter, hardware versus software, settings, and when not to use it? Marty Eighty is going to start us out. Marty? All right. Well, there are so many different uses for a limiter and so many different ways to set it up. I mean, in some cases, you know, in some ways you can think of a limiter as a hard compressor or a compressor as a soft limiter. Um, and so limiters were the tool of choice in broadcast uh, to absolutely positively prevent uh, uh, the audio from exceeding a certain level going to the transmitter. It, we, it was called a brick wall limiter for that very reason. And uh, But today we, uh, we use limiters to, for the, you know, the same reason to keep the audio from overmodulating either a recorder or digital bitstream. Um, but some people use it as a hard compressor, even in just regular production work. Um, I, I really don't think it's the right tool for that. Um, I think that, you know, a compressor can be set up to, uh, to, to do that job and be much smoother at it. But if it gives you a sound that you're looking for as an effect, then, you know, there, there are no rules to say you, you can't. Fair enough. Mitchell Hill. I agree with Marty. I think he's uh, on target with it. A limiter and a compressor are two, are meant for two different things. The limiter is meant to keep the peak levels from overmodulating, as uh, Marty was saying, uh, like a transmitter. It could be a satellite link or something else. It is an absolute limit to that. A compressor, on the other hand, is a little bit softer in the way it does that. It might have a soft knee in it, and it may have three to one or eight to one. Uh, compression, which means for every 3 dB increase, it only outputs one. It's not going to protect that uh, device down the line. That's what the limiter's job is. So working with a limiter and a compressor together is probably the best scenario. And I know we did that all the time in the radio business. And the closer that you could get the average level, which the compressor deals with, to the limiter's maximum level, adjusted what we would call a psychoacoustic thing called loudness. 
So the more they were together with the peak limiter doing its job, keeping the levels from overmodulating and the compressor getting the average level closer and closer to where the peak limiter was working was a, uh, a much overused compensation. All you have to do is turn on an FM radio today and listen to the result. And for those of us who are in broadcast, the peak limiter kept you out of the FCC's bad graces because if your transmitter put out too much, you get a big fine. Andrew Lipnick. Yeah, use case matters here for sure. Uh, if you're doing you know, music production at home and all that, you might want the sound of a vintage compressor and that's where you use a plug-in like, you know, from Waves or whatever company you like. In uh, For live sound, uh, what is really standard practice for myself and a lot of people doing live sound is to do some compression on the input just to smooth that out and give you some control over that, uh, the dynamic range of that source. And then what I'll do is further down the line, so if I group, for example, if I'm doing a corporate event and I have all these lav or headset mics, I'll put a, another compressor in a subgroup and that's really f to catch those loudest peaks. If someone really belts something out, like a loud laugh, or you know, speaks very uh, loudly to the audience, the limiter will kick in at that point, but that's the only time it generally kicks in, and it's really to protect uh, the levels going to records and the stream, because you don't want to you don't want to distort those signals. So the best way to do that is just to have that limiter as a like a it, the threshold only kicks in on those loudest things, uh, loudest uh, impulses. Courtney Gooden. Yeah, things have changed considerably when we went from analog to digital. Um, in the old days, analog limiters uh, actually used photocells and a photoresist and a light bulb uh, to uh, limit the sound, and it had a nice smooth sound, and a lot of times that is emulated or actually used in uh, these people that want that vintage limiter sound. They actually use a little light bulb that's driven by the audio and a photoresistor or photocell that passes the audio through, and uh, that's hooked up to a limit to a voltage-controlled amplifier that limits the amplitude going through. Um, but when we went to digital, uh, we had to do things like uh, do brick wall limiters to prevent aliasing uh, uh, on the D A to D converter. So those are in there, and you don't really have any control over those. Those are in there to prevent the higher frequencies that come in from generating overtones that would uh, create aliasing problems down in the audible range. Um, these days, uh, software limiters probably that are DSP based have a lot more control than the old, uh, uh, hardware type limiters. So you have a lot more control over your limiter if you're using it, uh, audio situation. And of course, in a digital situation, like was mentioned, you do not want to go over, um, the, uh, bit count of whatever your, uh, bit depth you're recording at. So, cause then it would be, uh, it sounds catastrophic when you run out of bits, so you want to make sure that you keep that signal below the maximum depth uh, level of uh, your digital recorder, and that's usually what they're used for these days. Uh, Jeffrey Powers. Yeah, and, and uh, of course, you have the two ways to use it. You have the way to use it as the overall, the cutting of the grass type uh, idea. Or and and when you do that, if you've got a, a guitar, that's uh, and you could you could lose the the tones that your guitar comes out with, and then you have the channel level, which uh, mostly it's more compression. Back in the day, it was it was compressors for each channel and limiter overall, uh, but uh, it was also you know it, it's one of those things that you have to really be 
concerned about when uh, when you're doing the overall mix and you're limiting the overall mix because uh, something that could sound great, turn on that limiter, all of a sudden it doesn't sound that great. Fair enough. We have, I think, one more, sure. but we're getting ready for Paul to join the panel here. Uh, let's very quickly hit the Chris Widener question next. Chris Widener for Lafayette, Indiana. The Starlink flat panel is for in-motion use. I've got several Mevos for in-camera switching besides the GoPros. What uh, external vehicles, cameras, have you had? Good luck color matching to better cameras. Um, color matching has always been a weird thing. One of the things I've found is if I stick with a particular brand of camera, my color matching requirements are far less. Every time I've tried to match a Sony's color science with a Panasonic's color science, uh, science it's just really hard to get them to look exactly uh, the same. And I think that's because each manufacturer can roll their own color um recipe so to speak uh so that's the first thing i do and you're mentioning gopros uh if you're using all gopros i would imagine you'd have the same thing it'd be reasonably easy uh, the other thing i've seen in color balancing is the shot matters as well if i have two cameras the same camera in the same room but i'm pointing one towards a uh a speaker who's against a window and I'm pointing the other one into the room, getting those shots to come anywhere close to match just because of the different illumination levels and how it works with their skin can be uh, a challenge. Often the interior, the interior shirt will uh, shot will look much more colorful and much more natural. And it'll be a real pressure to get that backlit with exterior 5,600 Kelvin light uh, to get the person's face even to look similar to the other shot in the camera. So there's a lot of things that determine um, how to get things matched. Courtney, you had some thoughts? As Alex mentioned the other day, um, you know, try and get all your cameras to be the same manufacturer, or at least maybe even the same chip that's in all of them, uh, the sensor chip that's in all of them. That way the color science will match between the different cameras. If you can't do that, uh, and your cameras are HDMI based, you could run them through something like a Blackmagic uh, format converter that converts uh, uh, from uh, HDMI to SDI and HDMI to HDMI and can apply a LUT. That way you can apply a LUT to that uh, image coming out of one camera and match it as best you can to another camera. A lot of those cameras, especially the action cameras, uh, don't really have the ability to apply a LUT or really vary their color science very much at all. It's what you see is what you get on most of them. Absolutely. And it looks from my view that Paul has joined us. For those of you who've been looking forward to the second hour, it is here now. Uh, we are really excited to have Paul Selker here. He's the president of Spark Street Digital. It's an audio integrator that does work in multiple states, and uh, he, he's going to be talking to us for the next little time. Paul, welcome to the panel. How are you doing today? Thank you very much. I'm well. I'm happy to be here. Um, yeah, happy to be a part of it. Excellent. Can you tell us a little bit about first uh, Spark Street Digital and then about your background second? So what about what about what do you do at Spark Street yeah, Digital? Yeah. So um, I, um, I wouldn't actually describe us as an audio integrator. I would describe us as a live stream production company. Um, so um, if it's a live stream, we do it. Um, if it's not, we don't. Um, and that includes audio for sure. Um, uh, but it isn't always actually if if Tunde, I would love to show just really briefly. Tunde, could you put Robo three to program for a second? I just want to show where we are because I think it's of interest. Um, sure. There we go. So that's We're where we are. Um, and this is similar to what we often do. 
Um, so you can take me back, Tunde. Um, we are a production company for live streams. Um, so that means we do the on-site piece. That means we do um, the servers. We run our own content distribution network for live streaming content, captions, everything. Um, there's much more I could say, but I'll, I'll be quiet for now. <laughs> <laughs> well, could you tell us a little bit about your history? How did you get interested in this? Where, what was your background? Yeah, I was actually on the client side um, in the originally. I ran digital for a communications firm that worked primarily for um, foundations and large nonprofits. And in 2010, um, I wanted to get um, live streams for my clients um, and became frustrated um, by what I would get when I would when I would go and go out and try and hire folks to do them. And um, over time, I started to think, you know, this actually is something that we could do, that I could do. Um, I tried to convince my old company to let me start it there. Um, thankfully, they refused that request um, uh, and uh, said they don't like to own gear. Um, and but I love to own gear, so that 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 gave me the push I needed to start Spark Street, which was in 2011. So we're we're, I guess that means we're just coming up on 12 years old. Yeah, 2010 seems like the Neolithic era in streaming, particularly on the web. It goes back a long ways. What was it like back then? What did you? What were your big challenges? I mean. <laughs> The challenges weren't so different. I mean, I think one of the things that that struck me when I started to explore, you know, coming from a more com more of a computing than a video or audiovisual background, um, you know, I as the user, as the end user, what I care about is what I see when I press play on the player. And so we would, so the folks who would come on site who, that I would be working with, we would get beautiful you know, 20,000, 50,000 dollar cameras um, and great equipment on site. And then they would compress it down to nothing to get it out to the internet. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, that was the, the, the experience that the people who were watching were getting was subpar as a result. And so, you know, I, the, you know, that, the first thing that I did when I started the company was just encode at a higher bit rate. Um, and you know, that holds true. Um, what other challenges were we facing? Um, a lot of, there were a lot of things that we couldn't do that folks wanted us to do like, um, moderated Q and a, like, um, uh, like registration gates. And so that's ultimately why we built our own CDN for moving video around online is that it gave us the opportunity to, to offer some of those features to clients and build out custom web pages and viewing pages and embed codes, um, stuff that now is more available in the in the the marketplace, but then wasn't really. What what did what is your typical kind of client? I'm not asking you to disclose specific clients, but tell us who the kinds of organizations you typically work for. Yeah, so um, we are um, we have three offices. One is in um, DC. Um, that's the that's the mothership. Um, one is in San Francisco, and then one is in New York. Um, because we started in DC, and that's where I am now. Um, because we started in DC, um, we have a client base that you might expect. Um, you know, we do. Um, if you've ever watched a stream for the National Academy of Sciences, um, we probably did it. Not, I won't guarantee that, but I think there's a good bet. Um, and um, and so, you know, this is stuff that um, might feel. That isn't that on the spectrum of collaborative co-created experience to show it like lives over in collaborative co-created experience a lot of the time um, uh, and might be a little policy, a little wonky. Um, but um, but as the company has grown, we've moved from that space um, of 
policy science um, to have a broader broader set of clients, more corporate, a lot of political, as you might expect, being in D.C. Who do you interface with? Are there event planners who do these political kinds of things or other kinds of things you work with? What What's the contact? Are you working with corporate executives or event planners or yeah. what? It varies, yeah. I mean, in, in political stuff, you mo- most of the time, the title of the person I would be talking to would be an advanced person. Um, you know, that would be, that's also the person who is, you know, if it's a large campaign, maybe they would have a digital team that would have the, the, the sort of the horsepower to interface with us directly on some stuff. But, but a lot of times it's the advanced person. And that's also the person who, you know, in other industries might be called a planner, but it's just, it's, it's peculiar to, to, to politics that they tend to favor that word, but this person who's sitting on the bike rack and the, and the, the, the PA and so on and so forth in the room, you know, we get in the corporate world, we get more planners for sure. Um, the, um, and you know, um, someone just called us to live stream their 80, their dad's 80th birthday party. That'll be fun. (laughs) (laughs) So you get to work on a variety of different kinds of things, kind of up and down the spectrum. What, tell me about one really interesting thing that presented problems you hadn't run into before. Oh, interesting, interesting thing that presented problems we hadn't run into before. Um, here's an interesting one. Um, we have some, we are really passionate about accessibility. Um, it's it kind of comes with the territory. If you're a live stream production company, like live streaming is a form of, of accessibility. Um, it's a form of access. Um, so people, so we attract a client base that also cares about this. Um, and so we we've developed all sorts of interesting caption insertion workflows and, you know, and multilingual live streaming workflows, which I really, I get really excited about. But sometimes we get asked for things that are, um, that where they push our limits. So we did a show, I actually think I might have a photo. Um, let me see if I can hang on. Um, we, we do, we, we do a lot of work for, um, uh, we have done a lot of work for, um, the poor people's campaign, which is Bishop Barber's organization. Um, here's a, um, uh, um, a shot from an event we did in DC on the mall uh, on Pennsylvania Avenue. Um, uh, Marty was on the show, I should say. Um, and, um, you'll note that there are live captions. They're open captions live in English and Spanish at the same time, um, plus ASL. Um, and, um, I'll say that this was part of the live stream, but it was also, um, it was also in IMAG. Um, so there was the need to provide access for both, um, Spanish and English speaking, People as well as people with um, uh, with a hearing impairment potentially um, who needed captions in both languages at the same time, and it needed to be provided on site where there might not be cell reception. We might not be able to do you know IR um, uh, earpieces. It's outdoors, lot RF crowded environment. So the ult- way we ultimately did it is we did um, interpretation and Spanish captioning on the IMAG. Um, and that was kind of a fun, that was a fun project. You, you can take out the slide today. <laughs> That's nice. That's really, an, so it's really, everything is kind of bespoke and you have to plan it from the ground up. Since we have a lot of audio people here today, just naturally from the office hours day, um, yeah. talk to us a little bit about how you handle audio issues. Um, it, antennas, wireless mics, all those things, spectrum yeah. planning. What, what do you need to go into to make an event a success for yeah. your enterprise. I did see a fun question around, um, around comms. Um, I think, I think I saw someone, um, asked us that, um, the, uh, um, uh, which I can talk about first and I can get, I may also pass off to Marty because I'm, I'm, 
not really an audio engineer, even though I can sort of pretend occasionally. Um, the um, I one thing that we do a lot is we use Discord for comms a lot in a way that many people use Unity. Um, but we will have um, a little. We have a um, on our Discord um, server. We have different. Um, different voice chats for our different control rooms, including in San Francisco, DC, New York. Um, and we will often um, patch into those if we have a show that has an on-site element as well as a, um, a remote element. And so, in fact, on this show today, we've got um, a Hollyland Solidcom M1. Um, yes, that's what it is, um, which we like a lot. And we're using the four-wire um, to pull in your unity, but we would also be using that for discord a lot. So that's a, that's a fun thing we do. Um, so you're patching all the comms through discord. Uh, we love discord for that. And one reason, specific reason why is that discord, um, has the ability for each user to make their own mix for themselves. So if you're sending like program audio into discord, um, you know, along with multi-view, for instance, if for a, for a remote director or, you know, any remote technician um they can choose when they want to hear that pro that that program audio um it scales really nicely you can send a whole bunch of different video feeds in along with the audio it's just a very adaptable tool and it's commonly used um it's broadly compatible um has a reasonable mobile app you know it can be used for camera comms really really trivially that way um so we we get a lot of mileage out of discord and and i should say um Actually, in the room today, looking or looking sort of at me is is Mark, who who is one of our one of our full time folks, who is a, a Twitch streamer himself in his um, in his non Spark Street time, and he's the one who really brought us um, into the, the 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 Discord world. So we we come to, we come by it honestly. At least Mark does. Excellent. Hey, we had a question from Courtney here on the panel. Courtney, yeah. So. Uh... You you maintain do you maintain studio space in your three anchor locations in San Francisco, DC, and, and New York for no, clients to come to you, or does that just used as a master control area, and then you send out remote uh, uh, or fly packs or or a whole remote crews into the uh, into the wilds to capture stuff and send it back up to your yeah. CDN? Yeah, no, good question. We've never had a studio, um, and you know there are so many studio. I mean. Just in life, there are so many studios that are kind of underutilized that I've never, and we always have been had had friendly studios that we like to work at. So we've never felt the need to have one of our own. Um, the um, most of what we do is event work, so we go to where the event is. Um, you know, through the pandemic, we 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 grew through the pandemic, um, and we did it through virtual events and we built control rooms as everyone did, um, and now we are getting. A lot of mileage out of using those control rooms alongside, um, you know, alongside on-site cameras backhauled through bonded cellular, for instance. Um, we can, you know, we can bring a couple of different cams back to the control room, add graphics, stream out however many endpoints we need. We did that for a lot of stuff in the elect in the last election cycle. Very, very useful, especially if you don't have a lot of time on site. So most of your work is hybrid events, then the um, live yeah. events that are you're, you're broadcasting. I mean, the, the, it, de it depends on what you mean by hybrid. You know, I know, I know this. I know, I know. Although I'm not a frequent flyer on this show, that there that there has been a, there's a, there's there's hybrid events are a, a dirty word, perhaps. Um, the um, uh, so um, I, they aren't to me. Um, I, but yes, I mean, depending on your definition of hybrid, um, most if we're if it's not live streamed, if there isn't something going out to YouTube, Facebook, Vimeo, our servers, Zoom, we're not there. Um, and so we do probably 500. Last year we did just under 500 events. Um, so 
of which I think maybe a third were fully virtual. So the rest, yeah, were hybrid. I think what the show's kind of overall feeling about that is that as a producer, you're trying to figure out who am I serving first? And if you're trying to serve the live audience first and the, the web-based audience as a secondary thing, you're not doing a great show for the web-based audience, which is potentially much bigger and vice versa. If you're trying to do a show for the web audience, you have to make sure if you decide to do hybrid and have an, a live audience that you're not leaving them out. So it's it just becomes a kind of a split thing in your head. Uh, we do have a lot of questions coming in from people and uh, so let me read the first one here. Mitch had to take a break for a second here. Laura Seals from Greensboro, North Carolina says, how do you test or verify a piece of new gear before trusting it with your show workflow? Um, slowly and deliberately and over time. Um, I mean, hi, Laura, by the way, um, we've, we've worked together on stuff and I, and I'm happy to, happy to see your name or hear it. Um, yeah. I mean, I, when I walked out of the, um, out of the office this morning, um, uh, there was um, a new fly pack that has been, I think it's been there for like four days, just, 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 just spooling away, recording, doing whatever it's doing. You know, we, I mean, the, we, well, I guess there, there are a couple different levels on which to answer that question. I mean, there's a specific piece of gear, which is just, which is, you know, there's no way to test it other than to burn it in. Um, the other way is just to, um, the, the other level on which to answer that question is the level of, you know, how do we make a decision about when to trust a new type of gear in our workflow at all beyond a specific, you know, box on site or in a fly pack. And I mean, preferably to start in a non-mission critical way um, and, you know, slowly creeping, creeping towards mission critical. We might run two versions of the same function on site. Um, or in the control room before we feel comfortable um, moving to a different, you know, capture card or, you know, uh, DI or even even piece of software that we're trying for graphics generation, for instance. Um, um, actually, to pick on Mark again, we we used a new type of um, oh shoot, I can't remember the name. We used a new um, uh, piece of software for programmatically getting social media data for lower thirds, um, and we had and Mark um, Mark ran it on his own Twitch stream. Um, and, um, before we felt comfortable using it for a client, which I, I can't name, but which you've all heard of. Sounds like the conditional stress testing as close as you can get to the end uses, uh, yeah. and a very important part of your workflows. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. I mean, the other thing I'll just say is that I, as someone who comes from computing more than from video and, and, and production, I actually have a very, how to put it, I have a very realistic view of desktop computing. Um, the, which is to say with if it runs on a desktop computer it is not a question of if it will fail it is a question of when it will um and and so if you are not ready for that you are deluding yourself um so i think as a result even though i myself write code and i come from computing i make sure that i if i must put computers desktop computers as they are today in the critical signal path that we have more than one of them and we're very clear on what they're for, minimize the software that they're running, um, and just have a plan for what happens when they fail. Cool. We're moving to our next question. It comes from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Paul says, can you describe the wireless comms setup at a live event that would be typical for you? Yeah, that, I, I, I touched on that a little bit um, the, the, with, the, with the Discord um, comms integration. You know, we are, we're, we're very, and, maybe, and Marty may 
have we're, we're Marty and I are sharing the same webcam feed today. Uh, so he's got a camera there too. So if Marty wants to chime in, he should just like punch me on the shoulder and then, uh, and then, and then you'll see him. Uh, the, um, uh, yeah, I mean, we are very partial to the Hollyland um, solid comms, um, both the C1 and the M1 flavor. Um, we like them a lot. Um, I think there are ways in which they are not uh, free speak, but most of those ways are not necessary most of the time. Um, and so, you know, we, we have the, with the M1 that we have now, we have um, we have a main channel, which is in this case is just a production party line, like everyone who's behind the tech table um, and who behind a camera is on a party line. And then we have a second channel, which is receiving um, both program insertion and um, um, and your Unity um, back channel comms. Um, um, the I actually, if I had to do it over again, I'd probably have a third channel for program insertion and the second and and have the Discord of the Unity um, back channel comms separate. Um, but um, uh, but yeah, we're very fond of those. Um, we often will patch into the control room with that. Um, you know, sometimes we'll even put camera ops on them and uh, on on um, on on Discord if we're doing a remote um, uh, remote show that is control room and um, uh, and on site um, at the same time. I don't know if that answers the question. I hope Marty, did you want to get in on the answer? Let's see. Yeah, if we can actually, get you there, thanks. There, there, there is something I would like to add to that. So, you know, as an audio engineer, and I'm mixing for a live stream, and there's an in-room event. Um, I need to hear comms because I need to hear what's going on, and I need to hear what I'm streaming out. And so, <clears throat> how do you wear two pairs of headphones at the same time? You know, I've seen people do it. It looks really weird, and it's extremely uncomfortable, and you can't hear either of them uh, uh, at the same time, right? So it's not a good situation. So what I've done is develop a way, and I'm actually going to talk about this during the workshop later today, um, to, to take that four-wire interface and actually run it through the console so that I can hear comms in one ear on my regular headphones, use a push-to-talk microphone that's built into the console so I can talk out on the comms if I need to. And uh, and sometimes I'm actually dealing with two sets of comms because there might be a, a, a house PA company that has their own comm system and we need to communicate with each other. So we'll have two separate comm systems that we need to integrate together and be able to talk to one or the other. And uh, we just find a way to work that out. I think Andy Lipnick in our panel has a question maybe for Paul. Oh, actually, I just, uh, it was about comms. I was just going to add to that answer. Um, yeah, the, um, I've been seeing a little bit more of the Hollyland stuff for sure. Um, in the corporate events world, you see a lot of <clears throat> clear comm free speak um, for wireless. Uh, you see um, RTS sometimes and also Riedel. And um, there's a couple of distinctions here we should probably make. One is that um, uh, you a lot of us have been referring to party line systems. So party line is many to one channel. And maybe you have a few of those channels. You might have a production channel, a lighting channel, an audio channel. You might even have an ISO channel if people need to have a private conversation. There are other systems like Riedel, for example, that are built around what we call a matrix system, which it, for large events where you have maybe like, you know, lots of people on comm and for example, the director needs to have a direct line to someone all the time or be able to push a button on his panel in front of him to talk to that person or to that 
particular talent through IFB or whatever. That's where the matrix systems come into play. And um, they can get fairly complex. But uh, Riedel is used a lot, for example, on sporting events. Um, it's used on um, the larger corporate events and things like that. It's not always necessary because it's a very, first of all, it's a very expensive system. And, um, and to go back to that, um, the Hollyland stuff, I, it's actually very interesting because it seems like it's a fairly affordable, quote unquote, <laughs> uh, you know, um, a wireless system to get into. FreeSpeak is a little more expensive. It gives you a little more flexibility uh, to um, manage your system. And that's kind of where it's at. Um, now, also, it's also very important to note that, yes, on a lot of events, you do need to tie in wireless into a wired system. A lot of the events I do, if you're sitting at a desk and you're not moving, I, if there's a wired comm as part of the system, that's what you're getting because you don't need to walk away with a wireless system. Now, that said, there's a few companies I work for where they'll just send like a 12-pack of FreeSpeak, and that's what everybody gets because it's just easier. You turn the thing on, mm-hmm. maybe you do a little programming, but you don't need to do much, and you're good to go, and you're up and running. And that's important because comms are the lifeblood of any production, and they used to be set up last <laughs> Now they're set up, at least in the shows I work, almost first so that the crew can start talking to each other and um, because they do replace walkie-talkies. Walkie-talkies are not a solution for comms. Paul, walkie-talkies are for when you're setting up. <laughs> Sorry, Paul, did I'm you have done. a thought or should I go on to the next question? I'm, I didn't quite hear what you just said. Oh, I just wondered if you wanted to respond or should I go on to the next oh, question? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with basically everything you just said. I'm, the only thing I'll add is that there are some times when you can approximate that sort of um, one-to-one conversation with the multi-channel party line systems like the SolidCom. So, you know, we might have a, a show caller who has their own channel on which only they talk and, you know, people hop on and off that when they need, but it's not a substitute for what you're describing, that sort of matrix matrixing if you really need it. Next question here is Laura Seal from Greensboro, North Carolina says, what's your philosophy, Paul, when it comes to redundancy, both in gear and crew? That's a, that's a great question. Again, I think um, I sort of touched on it in the answer to the, the other question about computing, which is, you know, it's necessary. I think one, one of the, one of the things that one of my most important questions that one of the most important questions that I ask whenever I begin to talk to a client, um, and I myself am on site less now than I used to be. So I I talk to clients a lot is I I try to understand what, where it is they are like, you know, there are some, there are some levels of redundancy that I would employ for, you know, for the event I showed the picture of before the, the, the poor people's campaign event, which is on Pennsylvania Avenue, you know, cannot experience issues, um, needs to work. Um, that I wouldn't employ for, um, you know, for, for us here today, just because, um, you know, we are doing this, uh, in our sort of extra time and we don't have the, uh, the, the luxury of doing that. So I think, I think it's, I think it's a question of meeting the client where they are. Um, and, you know, certainly any sort of desktop computing that's in this, in the critical signal flow needs to be redundant, you know, I, I can't sit here and say that I bring a broadcast switcher backup that's fully patched via matrix router, you know, on site. But then again, you know, we use all black magic and I have, I shouldn't say things like this. We've, I don't think we've ever had one fail in a really serious way during a show. Um, so 
you know, they're very resilient. Um, you know, I don't know if that, if that answers the question directly, but it is. And it actually is also leading us to our next one because Douglas Carmichael just asked, what hardware do you mostly use uh, for the video side? And are you using Blackmagic or have you evaluated other vendors? We really like Blackmagic. Um, their ecosystem is good for us. I mean, I'm, um, we, we had, we had, I think we got our first constellation just before the pandemic. Um, I think, um, yeah, someone's nodding at me. Um, the, uh, um, and we, we find because, so, I mean, just I'm hostile to software switchers in a box that look like hardware. Um, because I, um, because I think there's some, I, for the same reason I mentioned is that I don't, is that I'm realistic about what the, the, the properties of desktop computers are. Um, so I avoid, I tend to avoid those sort of in-between switchers. Um, we, yeah, we get a lot of mileage out of Blackmagic. Um, for cameras, um, we mostly, so today we're using some, um, some Sony camcorders, X160s and X180s, um, which ton of bang for your buck. And we're using some Robos, which are, um, which are Minrays, um, very simple, basic Robo. Um, but, um, but, um, yeah, I, I could talk more specifically about, um, about some of the stuff that folks would certainly be familiar with, but, um, I don't think anyone needs to be told that we use tons and tons and tons of decimators. Excellent. There you go. Yeah. Uh, let's move on to the next question then from our producers, Laura Seal at Greensboro is back again with how do you talk a client down when they're asking for not just the very difficult, but the impossible. I mean, ultimately in that situation, there's no substitute for helping them understand why. I, I think it's rare, though, that people ask for things that are truly impossible. Um, I, I'm, I'm trying to think of a situation. Uh, I mean, ultimately, there's no substitute for understanding why they want to do it. Um, so if, if, if I can understand why, then I can try and find another way to get around that, that constraint. Um, but ultimately, I think it has to, it ultimately comes down to the relationship and, and learning for them and for me about what they need to do. Fair enough. Next question comes from Douglas Carmichael, and he says, do you use free discard account or do you pay for Nitro? Pay for, we should pay for Nitro. Um, the uh, um, We should pay for Nitro. Um, paying for free things, I actually really believe in paying for free things. I think I recently discovered that we are, I, I say this not to toot our own horn because I want to shame everyone else. Um, we're the number three sponsor of BitFocus Companion. Everyone uses companion. Everyone. We shouldn't be the number three sponsor. So like we should, so so everyone should go out and do this as well. Um, I think we're up there with like the Norwegian national broadcasters and the opera. Um <laughs> the 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 Norwegian opera. Um, I might be wrong about that. But anyway, so no, we don't pay for nitro, but we probably should because we love this product and we should go do it. It's actually an interesting philosophy. I mean, if you're using stuff all the time, I mean, going back, it reminds me of the freeware days back in early computing, where if you really want brilliant people to keep developing brilliant stuff, you got to make it possible for them to make a living making brilliant stuff. And without the support, it's hard to get the stuff we yeah. need later on. FFmpeg, uh, FFmpeg is in that oh, category too. We, yeah, we, huge. We've actually, we use FFmpeg constantly. We do support it. I recommend that everyone else would. We, we, we actually built a custom front end from FFmpeg so we can chop up live stream video more efficiently. We use it every single day. Um, so that's another one that I really want people to support. Yeah, that at VLC. There's a whole bunch of things out there that started out as freeware stuff that is just really incredibly important. Um, 
Let's move on to the next question. This comes from Harshid Trevitti here on the panel from Daytona Beach, Florida. Recently, I've seen a growth in the need for captioning. What type of solutions do you offer for those who might need captioning done for their content? Yeah. Um, so there are many solutions. One thing that we're sort of not, where we're a little hostile to, not completely hostile, but a little hostile to, um, is AI captioning. Um, as good as it has become, um, for most of the stuff that we do, which has sometimes terms of art, um, sometimes jargon, um, it is not fully trustworthy, or we don't consider it to be fully trustworthy. Um, uh, sometimes it's the only alternative to nothing, so then we use it. But um, um, most of our captions are created by live humans, um, and we um, have a we we so we use. Our streaming servers are Wowza streaming engine servers, um, and we have developed um, a module for Wowza that um, that allows us to do caption insertion from stream text. So, if I don't know if folks know stream text well, but it's, I mean, it originally comes out of not like the broadcast world or anything like that, anything like that. But it's a tool that people used used, I think, initially to provide, you know, cart captions at a conferences. You know, they'd open up stream text, put it on a screen next to them and on the next to the stage. Um, uh, and show captions, but um, what Stream Text has ultimately is a is is a desktop application that allows a steno writer or a respeaker who's generating live captions to get those captions onto the internet. And once they're on the internet, we can kind of do whatever we want with them. So what we choose to do with them, oftentimes, is insert them into um, into an RTMP stream on our Wowza server, where we then relay it to Facebook, YouTube, Vimeo, Twitter, wherever else it needs to go, um, or Burn it in as an open caption. Um, you know, um, send it to a send it to a cart display if it needs to be displayed somewhere else. Send it to IMAG. Um, um, key it in some other way. Um, so, stream text we adore, um, and we use it to deliver live captions most of the time. And then we sort of take it from there to insert the captions wherever else they need to be. Um, and we're usually the ones hiring the live captioners most of the time, although some clients do bring their own. Fair enough. Next question comes from Jesse Mills in the San Francisco Bay Area. And Jesse says, what are your annual costs in rolling your own CDN? Question. Um, it, as you might expect, it varies month to month a lot. Um, it is, um, I mean, and also you'd probably need to know a little bit more about how many events we do and how many viewers and stuff in order for this to be really useful information. But um, but just in server costs alone, I think we are probably in the, let me think about this for a second. We're probably we're probably in the fifty to seventy five thousand dollar range, is what I would guess, um, which is pretty good given that we. I mean, I would guess that probably we do two hundred or three hundred events every year on it. That's it. Yeah. Although I beware, I remember at one point my bill for graphics processing was more than I took home one year, and I got a little concerned about that. So yeah. <laughs> these, these services can can grow and grow. Uh, next question comes from Bob Sturdivant in San Antonio, and he says, when working in the Washington, D.C. area, how do you handle the frequency planning with many, many security agencies working the same events? I see I see Marty's finger moving towards the button. I'm going to – Tunde, put Marty in. Go, Marty. <laughs> yeah, frequency spectrum planning and, and event planning for wireless uh, uh, devices is is a uh, can be a real challenge. You know, in a metro mar market, especially one like DC, um, where you know it, DC might be the the live video capital of the world. I mean, with so many 
nonprofits and political and broadcasting stuff, the international broadcasting stuff that comes out of here. And everybody's using wireless, whether it's wireless microphones, wireless comms, wireless cameras, uh, you know, security wireless, all of that. And so it becomes really, uh, really important to do spectrum planning. Um, so, you know, if you're using better wireless microphones like the QLXs, the ULXs, uh, the Sennheisers, then they come with uh, with uh, frequency scanning or, or spectrum scanning software built in that, um, you know, has really been quite advanced. Um, and but if I'm going on site in advance to to do a site survey and just to see how busy the RF traffic is, I'll bring in a spectrum analyzer um, to see what uh, what what bands are available, what frequencies are being used by other people. But even then, that's just you know I'm measuring at a, at a single snapshot in time because I could be measuring on a Wednesday, but by Friday it could be completely different. So, uh, you know, really important to to uh, keep an eye on things and monitor things every single day, sometimes multiple times a day. Uh, check out the spectrum, use your wireless workbench or whatever system you have available to you. I don't know if Paul or Marty wants to take our next one. Comes from Ronnie Hofsey in Tromsø, Norway, and he's saying specifically about audio. If you're live streaming a hybrid gala with live music at the vendor venue, do you add an extra A2 position for just doing the stream audio, or will your A1 do both front of house and the stream mix? We certainly want to do that. Um, that's the, the it will, and I'll, Marty will be able to talk more specifically to it. But if at all possible, if at all in budget. We want it. I mean, as I'm sure all of you know as well as as well as I do, probably better that um, you know there are things that, especially depending on the size of the room, there are things that won't be in that house mix that we really really need. Um, and while there are exceptions, um, I would say they are exceptions, not the rule. Um, and you know that being said, I uh, you know I quoted just this week um, a, um, a a robo based concert live stream for. A, a, you know, a group that it would not happen. It just simply wouldn't happen if we didn't have, if we had, if we had an A1 and that makes me sad, but we have to make do. I don't know. Marty probably has stuff to add. Yeah, Marty, doing a, to doing a house mix, particularly for music is a completely different thing than, than doing a stream mix. Um, the, the balance between channels, the EQ between channels can be completely different because on the one hand, for the stream, you're 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 going out an electronic signal path. In the house, you're working with loudspeakers that are coupling with the room that have their own acoustical properties. And the EQ for channels, the volume control, the volume uh, that is being pumped out and and how things naturally compress in air into people's ears, um, you know, can be completely different. So it Whenever possible, if you're really looking for good results on both mixes, you really need to have two different people doing it. And the person who's doing the streaming mix really can't even be in the same room, right? So in that case, you can't hear both. And to do a room, you have to be in the room. You have to be hearing what your audience is hearing. And to do a streaming mix, you have to be in an isolated environment, listening to what your audience is hearing as well. And it's really difficult to do both for one person to do both. Andy, do you have a quick comment on? 
Yeah, just to add to what Marty said, um, yeah, budget matters because I've I've been in situations where I've had to mix both, and in that case, what I'll do is um, get the room sounding really good, put on a pair of, pair of headphones, make sure that mix sounds good to the stream, and then I use basically the room as my my monitors. The, the PA system is my monitors for volume, but I'm always putting headphones on. Now, if budget allows, and I've done I've worked on events like this before. If the band is big enough, if they're a name act and they're traveling with their own engineer, you'll provide them with their own console. Their band will do the will do the mix. Their band engineer will do the mix, and they're feeding the other console that goes out to the stream, so that these two positions are separate. Um, they may they, they may very well even have their own monitor engineer. So it's that's on these larger productions though, where budget is allowed. Next question comes in from Douglas Carmichael, and he says, have you ever had to deal with the ATEM gray issue or other ATEM quirks in production? ATEM gray issue. Yeah, we've you know, occasionally seen in our streaming feeds out of this show and other things, uh, people have talked about it on their private shows and things like that, that uh, the ATEM occasionally needs to reboot after a certain number of hours. And if you don't refresh it power-wise, it'll put out a gray signal rather than giving you your actual output. We were talking about it the other day, is it being something like X number of days that it hasn't been shut down? It seems like it gets to a limit and then you have to reset it. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I'm, I saw someone at the tech table nodding. Um, the the uh, yeah, um, I see. I see that still. Um, I mean, it must be. I have to imagine it's not. I mean, the video hubs. I should say we've seen we've had no end of problems with, and we basically eliminated them from our workflow as a result. Um, they just they do not persistently do the same thing. <laughs> um, and so we, we, we have most, most of that routing we now do in constellations. Most of our control rooms have multiple constellations racked up together to serve that purpose. Um, the, um, um, I, apparently we have seen it. I still find them to be, um, we, we power cycle our whole control room with as much frequency as we can muster. So I think that probably keeps us safe. Occasionally I've seen a channel, an input get weird on an ATEM, um, but it's generally been pretty isolated. I, I, it's so rare that we've had to like power, like emergency power cycle an ATEM. So rare. Yeah, well, I shut mine down every day, and I've never seen the problem. I was, I was surprised. What, what ATEM gray? So I think it has to do with the way you use it and how much time you leave it on between shows. I know other people leave it on twenty four seven, so maybe they're running into it. Let's move to the next question. It comes from Harshid Travidi in Daytona Beach, Florida, and he says, "Do you find the need of audio description in your deliveries for clients wanting that specific?" Yeah. By the way, uh, the, you, I don't know if you, you guys could hear that, but there's a uh, construction next door, so we just got a little bit of it. Um, the uh, um, audio description is really interesting. With with live audio description, it's sort of a question of what would it be, right? So, um, you know, an audio description track is you know is giving someone who needs it a sense of what's going on, you know, um, uh, in the visual that they may not be able to consume for whatever reason. Um, but in a live event setting, it's often unless you unless it's heavily scripted and you know what's going to happen at a certain time, it's hard to know when to put the audio description in. And if it's a track that that someone can toggle to and from, they won't know when to do that. They may lose important audio content that's happening on the as part of the show. So, you know, people have asked me about it. I would actually love to find a way to do it. Like I think it could be done um, alongside, um, you know, some maybe like a um, like some sort of art experience where we know where we're going from, from from one art 
object to another and there's an there's an ability to sort of pause and say okay well now this is where we're going to put in the audio description while the audience looks at this content which is visual um but for most of our shows it's hard to understand how the audio description would work and i would love to be proven wrong by someone who knows more about audio descriptions than i do um because we don't play we're not a post oriented company and so I know that people who are do more of this, um, but I have found it hard to understand exactly where the audio description would fit into our world for a show that's not heavily scripted. Yeah, that's interesting you bring up art museums because for a long time, docents have done those little audio descriptions and you can walk through and look at painting by painting, but that's kind of an individual trigger the next, trigger the next. For a live show that's going on, it'd be interesting if somebody was trying to not just reproduce what the speaker said for people who had a, an auditory impairment or something like that, but actually describe it in text or something. It's a fascinating area of study. Let's move on to the next question. Ronnie Hofsey in Thompson, Norway is back, and he says, equipment for mobile production, heavy all-in-one media mega rack or modular and placed in front of the right operator. How are you splitting it up if modular? Yeah, yeah. Um, the great. We've done both. Um, I, I wish I had a photo of this, but I don't. I mean, when we started, I was building much bigger, much beefier racks, and they were annoying to lift, and you couldn't move them around. Um, and we have mostly moved away from that. I mean, I don't know if Tunde, if you can get a shot that I don't think we're gonna be able to see the, the, well, if you take the Robo three, you might be able to see on the right hand side of that shot near Tunde, Tunde wave. Um, yeah. So near him, there's a, there's an ATEM constellation fly pack, um, which has, uh, um, a Ronin, excuse me, a Shogun studio two. So eight for, for, for multiple ISO records, the constellation, a rack mixer, um, and then the power condition, that's basically it. And we try to not make our racks that much bigger than that um, in general. Um, you can cut back to me. Didn't Thank you. The um, um, uh, So I don't know. I personally have a philosophy that I don't want to own a box truck. It's just, it's just vans are what I like. Um, oh, come because, on. There's so much fun in traffic, heavy traffic in DC. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> you know, box trucks, you know, it's like when you have a box truck, then you get tempted to own things that fit in box trucks. And then you have to have people to move the things that fit in the box trucks. It's and the all production circle of life. Happen. It's it's bad things happen when you own box trucks. So I try not to own a box truck. And, and, and having modular racks helped me not own a box truck. It also um, helps us move things around. You know, we have... You know, at 500 events a year, we have a lot of different needs that are in different places. So it lets us mix and match what we need and where we need it. Fair enough. Next question comes from Jesse Mills in San Francisco Bay Area. Personally, I really enjoy being the technical producer of hybrid events and building those systems. There is novel and meaningful cross-pollination. Do you have some thoughts on the successful implementation of hybrids? Yeah. No, I I, I love hybrids too. I mean, I think... Um, uh, and it, it, there's an interesting question of whether if you've just got a live stream of an in-person event, you know, with all the limitations and, you know, potential downsides of that, um, as, 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 as noise echoes in the space, which maybe you can hear, maybe you can't from the, from the, from the drill that someone's using in the construction next door, um, the, um, is, which is a limitation of hybrids. Um, the, uh, um, you know, I think what we find is the most common use, the most common hybrid use case for us is just simply that people have um, remote remote speakers who need to be included and can't come in person, um, and um, and in order to make those remote speakers and other remote attendees feel ambiently present, we do things in the room to to make them visible to in-person attendees. Um, so you know, we'll we'll add a whole bunch of extra screen, screens. We'll put screens 
all over the place to show um, to show gallery views and remote presenters um, in a way that's concurrent, not not a substitute for the content. Um, the um, and just make them feel present. Um, um, there's more I could say about that, but but uh, you know, um, but that but making making the remote folks feel present to the in person folks is something that I really value. And to me, that's always been the Michael Jordan question. Are, are you the basketball player or the baseball player for this show at this time? And switching back and forth, I mean, he was the planet's finest basketball player by many uh, things. When he moved to playing baseball, he wasn't quite as good in terms of the other baseball players. And I think sometimes when you're trying to do hybrid, it's a problem like that. You know, are you focused on being the best you can possibly be? at live or are you focused on being the best you can possibly be at not live at your stream and you know we try as hard as we can to pay full attention to both but he couldn't do it in sports and i'm not sure i've ever been able to do it when i'm trying to serve two masters at exactly the same but time let me just suggest that like yeah. that yes all the limitations are real and you can't do both at the same time but at the end of the day you know I, I don't see us as we are. The event is not important because of us. It's important on its own, you know, and we are need to be responsive to the needs of the event. You know, the, the, and, and there may be times when an event can be forced into one bucket fully or another bucket fully. Um, but there are also times when it can't be. And I think we need to be humble enough to say, actually, you know, this event, wants to be a hybrid because it has an in-person element and a, and a remote element and we can't corral it in one way or the other you know that's what this event needs and i should say you know in terms of like engagement our national academy of science stuff has unbelievable engagement it has you know it has view times in the hours it has people asking questions constantly it has nothing to do I mean, not nothing. It has much less to do with our production and more to do with the fact that we are serving as as sort of like transparently, the production is as transparent as, as it can be. We're serving the needs of that event. So I, you know, I can always imagine, I can, if I use my imagination, I can think of a way that any event could avoid being a hybrid. But I think in practice, when it comes to like to, to, to meeting the event where it is and figuring out what it needs, um, and what that may include budget. Um, I think there are many events that affirmatively should be hybrids, and I will I'll defend that notion. I, I think that's perfectly fair. I mean, if you've got a million person march, they're out there demonstrating a particular passion for a social issue or something. The event is the story, and to try to collapse it into something that's just done virtually doesn't serve what's needed. So I, I see both sides of it. I think for those of us, for the many people that we deal with every day here, who are trying to understand this spread of technology and the fact that we can sit in all of our rooms here with a crew diverse all around the world and produce a program that literally millions could contribute to and could benefit from. That's what didn't happen before. What did happen before was the large in-person events. So now we're trying to figure out where is this intersection and, and how is it best done? And 
that's part of, I think, why Office Hours has existed and done our thousand plus daily shows is to try to explore these topics. It's a fascinating thing. Let's move on to the next question. And I believe Mitch is back in his seat. He's gotten finished with Orvis. Mitch, you want to grab this? Thank you, Bill. Uh, Ronnie Hofsey from Trumso, Norway asked, lots of clients have their own Vimeo premium account. What favorite encoder would you go with, software or hardware? And what if they prefer to distribute using YouTube? Audiences in the hundreds, not thousands. Paul, yeah. your thoughts? Yeah. Um, Vimeo is great. Um, I mean, it has some sort of... Um, it, they've, they've, they've worked through some weirdnesses, I would say, with their um, administration, um, their web-based administration for streams. Um, and you know, mostly have worked through it in a constructive way. Um, we always use hardware encoders when we can. Um, we, we, we favor Teradek encoders specifically. Um, we have, we continue to use their cubes, even though they are now replacing them with their prisms. Um, we find them to be extremely resilient. Um, and, um, though they don't encode multiple streams at once, we can mostly do that sort of transcoding on the server in a useful way. So we don't feel the need to have multiple outbound encodes for most events. Um, but yeah, we, we love, we, we love streaming to Vimeo. Um, we do it with Teradek cubes mostly. Um, Vimeo, Vimeo, um, YouTube is great too. Um, YouTube, I guess if you had, if you, if you had made me choose, I'd stream to YouTube over Vimeo, but they're both terrific platforms, except high bitrate video are relatively kind to it, um, to that, to that bitrate, high bitrate video. Um, anything that's not like our own platform that we don't control is going to transcode. Um, um, so there will be quality loss, but, but YouTube and Vimeo seem to care more than some others about that. Let's do one more producer question, and then I'm going to slip to asking you to kind of closing thoughts things. Go ahead. Douglas Carmichael's here. And how do you secure the Discord server used for your production? Gosh, I, I, um, I should get my, I should have Mark come up here and answer that question. I mean, the, I mean, probably the answer is it's security, security by obscurity because we are using invite links and, you know, um, there's no particular way that anyone would, would, I mean, yeah, no, it's security by obscurity. I mean, we could certainly like ban and remove people if we wanted to, but, um, but, but we honestly haven't had to think too much about that. Maybe we should. We had a guest that dove into discord pretty well. She was really fabulous about talking about the backend. And, uh, I think there is more security there than I imagined. And, but I also think that, that you're right. Sometimes it's just doing, you know, ball, basic ball handling skills, knowing what you're doing, understanding that there are people who will occasionally try to get, particularly a community that kind of grew out of the, the gaming thing like Discord did in its original days. But I don't see a lot of problems with that. Maybe we have time for one more before I'm going to ask Paul to give us his last thoughts here. So let's do one more question, Mitch. Okay, from Hashid Trivedi in Daytona Beach and right here on our panel. What type of camera and mics do you all tend to use in your production? Yeah, um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for a new cat for a new there to be a new fleet camera for us to own. Um, right now, um, I'm talking to you over a Sony. PXW X160 or 80, which is, you know, to be honest, it's a little on the older side, um, but with ample light, it looks pretty solid. I mean, camcorder format cameras have many advantages. They, speaking, they don't, you don't need to put them in a box truck. Um, they come with nice long lenses. Um, they do a lot for you. Um, we also use Ursa Broadcasts um, G2s um, with with Fujinon glass for larger events that the, the outdoor rally that I um that I showed a picture of before we use those cameras. Um, but I'm very, very fond of, of camcorders, um, um, in spite of their disadvantages. 
um, which are many. Um, for mics, I mean, if it's a if it's an in-person event which has a stage, which is a stage show, um, we will um, will use sure wireless of some kind. And Marty could talk more about the about capsules and stuff, and probably will in the in the workshop. Um, the um, um, actually, this is a random shout out, but if you need like a really nice cheap push to talk, um, Mono Price makes a surprisingly great cheap push a talk um that sounds we're not using them today but i think there are some on the floor over there uh that are surprisingly nice but no mostly sure wireless there you go so thank you paul this has been fabulous do you have uh something within a minute that you just want to and anything you haven't addressed here anything maybe about the future where you see your practice and your company's work going um i'm just gonna leave the floor to you for a little bit of time here yeah thanks i mean I don't know. I, I well, first off, I just want to thank everybody. Thanks you, thank you guys for having me on. I, you know, I, I, I thank Marty for, for making this whole thing happen. We're going to have a whole big workshop. He's going to teach everybody how to do all sorts of things. It's going to be fun. Um, I want to, so I want to thank you guys. I want to thank, um, uh, my, my whole team who's out here, um, switching and running this show, um, and the workshop to come. Um, and then we also had the space donated by 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 brick and mortar events it's like a, it's an actual really honest to goodness event space so i i really appreciate them for that so that i'll say the only other thing maybe i'll leave with a there's a provocative idea that i've been sort of throwing around in my head that i'll close on which is that i have a i have an idea that in production we often have um we have a lot of if if if, if production companies are restaurants um we have like tons of mcdonald's and tons and in some Michelin starred restaurants. Um, and, and I, and my provocative idea is that like, we actually might need more cheesecake factories where like the process of, of putting together a stream is the focus and not making a hand whittled artisan project or not caring about it at all. But people who are really devoted to process and building a, a process for creating repeatably excellent streams that serve their clients needs. So I, that's my, that's my final thoughts is, 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 we should be more like the Cheesecake Factory. Well done. Thank you so much, Paul. A uh, couple little quick notes. Don't forget tomorrow, Chris Sabata is going to be here for a one-man show on our second hour, uh, talking about streaming over 120 sporting events a year. On Friday, it's Fly Pack Design. Saturday, uh, the One Learning Community will be in delving into learning management systems. And of course, Sunday is our introspective day here. I think that takes us to the end of things. Thank you all for being a part of Office Hours. And don't forget, Paul is going to be on After Hours in one hour from now. There's another show in between, but come back, take a break, and then uh, he will be answering all of your questions along with Marty and the rest of his team. Thanks for watching. We'll see y'all tomorrow. Great job, Paul. It was fun to talk. We do our, our whispering close at the end of the show. Thank you. It was really fun. I hope I hope we did okay. You did. I was surprised. I didn't realize there were two people in your square. That's the first time we've done a swapping Hollywood square on the panel. It freaked me out a little at first. Well, we we were gonna backhaul the cam separately, but it creates but but you know, one of the deficiencies of hybrid is that it creates audio signal flow issues if you yeah. backhaul the cam separately. I just didn't know Paul was I didn't know that Marty was you and you were Marty and that was the same square. <laughs> It's like thinking, yeah. when are we going to start the show? When is he going to show up? Oh, yeah, yeah, wait. Yeah. <laughs> He's in a lair.
yeah no thank thank it was it was it was a lot of fun i i hope i hope it was useful to folks i'm sure it was you did a great job thanks what you tears was the secret square the <laughs> secret square. here we can if, if, you today you want to take that in program then you can see both of us yeah yeah, it's yeah. interesting. It's the first time I've had to deal not with just panelist arrangement, but panelist depth. How many people do I have in this square? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like a stack. Exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, we thought we thought about doing. So what we were, I mean, what we originally were going to do was send you three camera feeds: a two shot and two one shots, um, um, and then it could be switched on the back end. Um, but but reasonably, I think someone on on your tech side said, said that there might be audio sync issues with that um, because we would have to, in order not to get one of our mic feeds back, coming back to us, we would need to send both mic feeds over one of the cams. Um, and then, you know, there might be a sync issue for sure. So anyway. Yeah. Web broadcast is a work in progress. This is mm -hmm. fun. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, nice to meet you. I'm going to dive Thank out. Thank you so much, you, Bill. You, you, want, you want Marty back, right? Well, yeah, yeah, I think so. Marty, yeah, thank yeah, you for, for arranging everything. See you, it was Paul. a fun day. Thanks so much. It was fun. Thank you.